1925, the year of my father's birth, 96 years ago, a trial took place in Dayton, Tennessee, a trial that was to become famous. John Scopes, a science teacher, deliberately violated Tennessee's law against the teaching of evolution in Tennessee public schools. Basing his lessons on Charles Darwin's Origin of Species, first published in 1859, Scopes taught his students that human beings descended from apes. The trial drew national attention. Serving as prosecuting attorney was William Jennings Bryan, a former U.S. Secretary of State who had the unusual distinction of being three times the Democratic Party nominee for President of the United States and who lost every time. Brian was a Christian and had deep respect for the Bible. He regarded the Genesis account of creation that we have read as the truth and grasped the danger to the country if Darwin's ideas became dominant in public schools. At the request of the American Civil Liberties Union, yes, they were around in those days, Clarence Darrow, a famous lawyer from Baltimore, Maryland, served as counsel for the defense. Darrow was Brian's opposite. Darrow was irreverent atheistic, and despised the Bible. He intended not only to defend his client, but also to humiliate Brian and all who supported him. The outcome of the trial, a fact that many have forgotten, was a guilty verdict. It was a conviction. And the judge sentenced John Scopes to pay the fine that the law required. Brian's work on that occasion was his last, for he died just a few days after the trial concluded. A college began in the same town that went and still does go under the name of Brian. But the big winner in the trial, in spite of the fact that his client lost, was Darrow and his skepticism and atheism. Darrow cast doubt on the biblical account of the creation of the world. And in doing so, he made front-page news and forced evolution into the public mainstream. 
He suggested that if anyone was intelligent, that person would reject those who argued for a literal understanding of the Genesis account and would embrace the view that accommodated evolution. Few realized it in 1925, in the middle of the decade that came to be known as the Roaring Twenties. But that trial marked the opening of the culture war that is still raging across our country. Darrow believed it was necessary to strip the people of this country from any sense of God's role in the creation of the world to persuade the people to accept the deviant behavior that now passes for normal. If God is not in charge, then people may do as they please without any fear of consequences. It's 96 years since all of those events. Brian and Darrow and Scopes are all long since in their graves. But the question of origins continues to dominate the national dialogue. The chapter we have read today is the most powerful voice in the world for the truth that in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Those who profess adherence to Christianity while maintaining belief in evolution have to grapple with the plain statements we have read in the Bible's opening chapter. People look for some way in which to give those statements a different meaning. But those statements are still there. And they still raise the question of origins. Those statements do not admit any other answer than the one we find in the opening statement of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The name of the Bible's first book means literally beginnings. We cannot understand the history of the world while we ignore the teaching of the first chapter of the Bible. In those familiar words that we have read, we find the powerful theme of beginnings. Beginnings. The Bible rests on the first chapter of Genesis. Those who want the mantle of Christian respectability without the responsibility of Christian orthodoxy rattle on about their opinion that Genesis 1 is peripheral, that it is just a minor aspect of the scheme of the whole Bible. So they treat the first chapter of the Bible as a myth or a legend, and they look to the wisdom of man-made science 
for the knowledge of beginnings. But to deny the truth of Genesis 1 is to impugn the character of the Lord Jesus Christ, for he treated the Genesis account as fact. What we have in this chapter is a clear description of the work of God's power in the creation of the universe. He created, as we read, all things by direct acts of his word and pronounced them good. What you believe about Genesis 1 affects what you believe about the rest of the Bible. The reason people learn to despise this chapter or to find ways to minimize it is because it teaches the truth that every creature is accountable to the creator, including every human being. This chapter reminds you and me that what we do is in the sight of the creator. It reminds us that to rebel against the Creator's law is to wage war on Him. It reminds you that those who wage war on the Creator are subject to His judgment and His condemnation. So this chapter calls on all to confess rebellion as sin before God and to cast themselves entirely on the mercy of Christ for salvation. I can't emphasize it enough. What you do with the words of this chapter is crucial. So don't despise these words. They reveal four powerful truths. First of all, history. History. The truth of history. History has its beginning here. I'll say it again later on, but I like to say it as often as I can. The whole idea that there is something before history is foolish. It isn't true. You hear people who study anthropology talk about prehistoric drawings and prehistoric evidence, prehistoric artifacts and all that. Utter nonsense. The refrain that echoes through the first chapter of the Bible deals with the first week, and I mean that in the same way we understand it, in the history of the world. The evening and the morning were the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, and the sixth day. At the beginning of the second chapter, we learn that God set the seventh day apart as a day for rest, for cessation. But they were actual days, and we know that to be so. Let us turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20.
and verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. Here's the reason. For in six days. The same word as we find in Genesis 1. In six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So here was the argument for keeping holy the Sabbath day. In six days God made the whole universe and rested the seventh day. Now, there are people today who want to say, well, actually the days in Genesis 1, they represent long periods of time. Ages. Millions of years. Maybe billions of years. Whatever the case. But in Exodus 20, in the context of the Decalogue, there can be no doubt that everybody understood what the meaning of those words were. The days of which Moses wrote were periods of time that the children of Israel knew were 24-hour days. They knew that a day included the evening and the morning. That is how the Jews reckoned on time. They measured their time from the evening, from the sunset, to the next sunset, the evening and the morning. The Holy Spirit means for us to understand the days of Genesis as 24-hour days. Now, there are always those who say, well, you know, there, there, there was, at least at the be- very beginning, no sun or moon until the fourth day. So there could not have been days as we understand them. Well, I don't know how God was able to divide the time into those periods, but God can do anything. And when God said the evening and the morning were the first day and the second day and the third day, what right have I to say, well, he meant something else by that. On the first day, he divided the light from the darkness. He called the light day and the darkness he called night. So even before the great lights that he created, that concept was fixed day and night. On the second day, he made the atmospheric heaven. On the third day, he made the dry land to appear and then commanded the dry land to bring forth various kinds of plants. On the fourth day, he made the sun. And the moon. And I always love that end of verse 16. He made the stars also. To go out at night. Maybe get away from the lights of the city. You will get some sense of the enormity of that simple statement. 
On the fifth day, he made the various animals of the world. And on the sixth day, he made man. Now this account that I've just reviewed briefly is history. And we know it is so because Jesus said it was history. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. And verse 4. To the question the Pharisees asked him about divorce, he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh? Wherefore they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. But notice the emphasis, have ye not read? Haven't you read? Now where would they have read it? They would have read it in the Torah. In the books of Moses. In the books of the law. That's where they would have read it. They would have read it in the first chapter that we have read of Genesis. So if you reject Genesis 1, then you're against the statement of Jesus Christ. And I well remember from my days in seminary many years ago now that the lesson was what Christ has said about the past settles all questions for his people. So the account that we have read signifies for us the beginnings of history. But in this passage we encounter another theme, the second powerful truth of which I spoke, theology. Theology. The chapter about beginnings teaches us concerning the person of God, who is the creator of all things. If you discard chapter 1, if you try to dismiss it by making it into a myth or a legend, then the foundation for theological truth goes with it. What do we learn about God here? We learn he is eternal. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That is, God has no beginning. The creation had a beginning, but God has no beginning. And God has no ending. When the beginning of the creation happened, God was. Before there was time. Before there was space, and we, we can't comprehend any of those concepts, but before that God was. Moses testified of this great reality. Let us turn to Psalm 90. 
Psalm 90. Verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. So the first mention of this truth of God's eternal nature is in the first sentence of the Bible. He is eternal. He is almighty. That is, we don't read that it was a difficult thing for God to create the universe. He didn't strain to do it. He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. He said, let there be light and there was light. So it wasn't like a process of waiting around for the light to appear. Let there be light and there was light. Every time when God spoke, his command took effect immediately. He's almighty. He's omniscient. That is, he knows all things. He knows exactly how to proceed. He knew the order in which to proceed. In the case of the animals, he made the animals with exactly those attributes and instincts that they needed to procreate. And that procreation, as we read here, was always after their kind. So no, apes did not eventually have people. We also learn in this chapter the truth of the Trinity. That God is, a, is triune, for he referred to himself in verse 26 in the plural. Let us make man in our image. So we learn of the grace and the mercy of God in the blessings he gave to his creation. And especially to the man. The creation was the reflection of God's goodness. The creation was good because God is good. God did not make anything that had flaws. And even after the fall, as David wrote in the 19th Psalm, the heavens declare the glory of God. But we come now to the third powerful truth in this passage that the beginnings also underline our understanding of humanity, and we come now to anthropology, the doctrine of man. Theology is the doctrine of God. This is the doctrine of man. We learn in this chapter about the origin of the human race. Humans did not arise through a series of chance mutations over hundreds of millions or billions of years. Humans are in this world and have been from its beginning as a direct result of God's action. And the crown of the whole creation was the man. 
And we learn that the design of the man set him apart from every other creature in the world. The man was not like any other creature. He was in the image of God. That is, the man was a reasoning creature, a rational creature with the ability for self-reflection, with the ability to consider himself and the consequences of his actions. He was the reflection of the Creator. A holy creature, like the Creator, living in holiness. God put the man in the place of responsibility in the creation and provided for the man everything he needed for his calling to reflect the glory of God. And significantly, we learn that God created humans as male and female, and that is all. In the passage we read in Matthew, Jesus taught the same truth. The question of gender identity in today's perverted culture is the effort to deny what Jesus said about the beginning. God made only two genders at the beginning. And those genders, I tell you today, are the function of biology. They're not the function of anything else. They're the function of genetics. That is, there's no medication or radical surgery that can alter the genetic makeup that determines whether you are male or female. So the idea that there can be six genders or 57 genders or 102 genders has no foundation in the scriptures whatsoever. Martin Luther commented on verse 27 by saying in his inimitable style, from this passage, we may be assured that God divided mankind into two classes, namely male and female, or a he and a she. This was so pleasing to him that he himself called it a good creation. Therefore, he went on to say, each one of us must have the kind of body God has created for us. I cannot make myself a woman, nor can you, speaking to the women, make yourself a man. We do not have the power, but we are exactly as he created us. So that puts the lie to the person who is seeking as a Republican to run for governor of California, Caitlyn Jenner, who is not a woman, but a man masquerading as a woman. We don't have the power, Luther said. So to go against what God established is to undermine the creation. But what do we know? 
the man and the woman rebelled against the commandment of the Creator and sinned and lost their holy estate. And then they needed a Savior. And we learn from this chapter the truth concerning Him. That's the fourth truth. Christology. The doctrine of Christ. The very fact that the man was in the image of God foreshadowed the truth as we could find it in Genesis 3 that God would come to take to himself in due course the likeness of a man. When the Lord Jesus came into the world we read about him that he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He came to be a man. And not only to be a man for that time, but also to be one forever. It's the amazing thing about the incarnation. As the Westminster divines put it so well, he was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. When Stephen was about to die, we read of him in Acts 7 and verse 55 that he saw this glorified man. Acts 7 and verse 55. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, oh, notice that, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven, beyond the ceiling of the place where he was. He looked into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. It was one of the last things that he said. Their response was to stop their ears, and to drag him to a place of stoning, and to put him to death. His testimony was that the Lord became man in his incarnation and he continues to be the Son of Man standing on the right hand of the throne of God. So in the creation of the man, as we read it in Genesis 1, we encounter the revelation that there will come the second Adam, the second person of the eternal trinity to become one of us so that he might deliver us from our sin from the curse of the law this chapter sets out the infallible record of the beginnings notice I say infallible 
It is inspired, yes, that is certainly true. But that inspiration means it is infallible. It is authoritative. Prehistory does not exist. This is the beginning of history, right here. All those drawings in caves and so on, that is part of history. The rock drawings that you can see in different places in this area and throughout our state, that they are part of history. They are part of being, of, of people who created them who are part of history. Prehistory does not exist because in this chapter we find the beginnings. The beginnings of history. The beginnings of theology of anthropology, of Christology. We learn the truth here. And I say, for everyone who professes to be a believer in Christ, this chapter is the end of the argument. God created the heaven and the earth. So there was no big bang or anything of that nature. God spoke. And out of nothing, the universe came into existence. And the meaning of it all is that we might learn to look to Jesus Christ, for ultimately, as we find in the New Testament, he was the one by whom and for whom all things were created. May God give us the grace then to have that lesson fixed in our minds because ultimately the glory of Christ is flowing from the creation of all things. These are the beginnings. And everything that has happened throughout history has its roots here in Genesis chapter 1.